Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. Hi, you're about to listen to our bonus episode to episode 105, featuring our extended conversation with Bill Goffrier from The Embarrassment and Big Dipper. If you haven't already, make sure to check out the main episode featuring our top five albums of 1986. But now sit back, relax and enjoy Only Three Lads. Welcome to our community once again for another episode of the Only Three Lads podcast, where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. And before we get too far, just want to thank the community. Had our biggest month in February, the most downloads. So yes. thank you to the community. Uh, we are so glad that we get to do this and hang out and talk music every single week with you. I am Uncle Greg, of course, that that you've already heard is the professor, the PhD of music, Brett Vargo. Well, one of the joys of doing this show is spotlighting, I guess, the alternative to alternative music, if you will. You know, we talk a lot about the talented artists who didn't necessarily get their due back in the day, and you don't hear them played to death on the ironically rigid classic alternative radio format nowadays. So our third lad actually did not have an album come out in 1986, but he certainly was very active. He's a guitarist, songwriter, and singer who was a member of not just one, but two groundbreaking bands in the O3L era, the hyper-nervy literate art punk of The Embarrassment, or The Embos, as they were affectionately known by their fans. They were originally active from 1979 to 1983, and then Big Dipper from 1985 to 1992 in their initial run, a band that I have to admit I failed miserably to describe to people in recent time. I've described them as the missing link between R.E.M. and the Pixies, and I've described them as the premature birth of 90s indie rock, and neither of which are really adequate to explain just how good and how unique they really were. Not only have both bands reunited off and on throughout the years, but if that wasn't enough, he is also a renowned painter. So, what a pleasure it is to welcome to Only Three Lads. He is wearing uh, pink cat headphones as well that light up. They're very cool. I love them. Bill Goffrier. Hi, thank you. That's quite the introduction. Wow. Brett is a huge fan. I'm spent after that. I do good introductions and then it's all downhill. I, I was expecting you to like pronounce my name in some, you know, typically mangled way, which I fully understand. You're used I thought, to it. Well, now, he's probably never had to pronounce my name out loud. I, I come across that a lot, but you did an excellent job. I, I appreciate that. We will uh, try to live up to that throughout the episode <laughs> and bill this is how much of a hard worker brett really is yesterday he sent me the pronouncer on your name uh, i did is it? Yes. so he already knew like i said he's a big fan so he's like and then i was like well that's very bougie Ooh. of him to have the a on the back is end, there an but... app for that <laughs> exactly <laughs> well bill my introduction to your music actually happened quite by accident in the mid 90s i was visiting palm springs on vacation and I was at a record store in the mall, and I perused the UCDs because, well, I'm always in a record store. 
So I came across a promo CD of tracks from the very essential compilation by the embarrassment, Heyday 1979 to 1983, for the princely sum of $4.99. It only took one look at the cover, and I say this with the utmost respect and as the highest possible compliment, but I saw basically four nerds on the cover, and I'm like, I've got to have this. What I heard when I popped that CD into my player was uh, really unlike anything I've ever heard. It starts with one of my favorite blast in your car, sing at the top of your lungs, anthems, sex drive. So you guys confounded interviewers back in the day by describing your music as blister pop, which sounds like a punny joke. But when you listen to your music, it, it kind of makes sense and you can draw your own inferences from that. So what is blister pop to you? You know, I, I don't know how that I credit John Nichols, our front man, completely with like thinking of that spur of the moment. It's on video. So I kind of think of it. I associate it with this um, little video interview piece that gets um, you know, shown and included in, in stuff and, and referenced. So I, being a very visual person as an artist, and I, that helps me remember stuff. So I picture him, that, those words coming out of his mouth. And at the time, you know, we were just sitting there trying to field questions in a witty way, that, and we were unprepared. And I don't know where that had come from. We'd never heard that before from him. And he just like, it just fell out of him. And I thought it describes the music in a pretty accurate way. Because, you know, before that, we would rely on, uh, we'd defer to Ron Klaus, our bass player, because he was the more, you know, practical, down to earth, uh, macho member of the band. And, you know, when we'd start going off into these descriptions of our influences, and you know oh, we were so inspired by you know current british bands punk post-punk and all he'd just say hey we're just a rock and roll band you know he and he that would be the default and we would have to agree we'd say well yeah ron's right you know when it comes down to it we're just a rock and roll band we just happen to have maybe a broader understanding of what rock and roll can, can include But when John came up with that description, and I think of it, think of our sound, you know, it's just often very descriptive. I, I guess we had enough of a range of sounds, especially as things went on. You know, we like to go from acoustic-y or at least clean kind of ballad arrangements up to the more blistering, aggressive-sounding you know, at bashing arrangements too. So, but we always wanted to have hooks in there. So, to me, you know, that kind of described it. And I loved the visual, the disgusting visual that it conjured up too of a of a popping blister. I thought, oh, that, what a wonderful way to encapsulate the band. You know, because it immediately turned off people just the way the name did too. It's like, what the embarrassment? What you know? What are we supposed to think of you based on that name? And I don't give him, I don't give John credit for that name. In fact, I don't have a visual to remember, you know, how that fell out. 
when it did, but I, I think I was more responsible for coming up with that name because, uh, as I recall, we spent almost a like a whole day that would have been just uh, rehearsal time, which which we had hours and hours of, you know, all throughout the week anyway. But we were under pressure to come up with an official name because we were going to perform on the on live on the radio and um, didn't really have a name yet. So we had to take some time out, much needed rehearsal time, and, and it's like, let's just figure out this name thing. And we're writing down all these names and crossing them out, saying, no, that sucks, that's terrible. And I think if we hadn't come up with the embarrassment, the next best choice that we were gravitating toward was the elastic waistband. Your music could expand. Yeah. See, that was a good name. And waistband, I had. To, I was thinking about waistband. Would it was written down as one word, just like you know what's on your under on your underwear, and we would have had to live with that. It's a very West Coast name. Yeah, it sounded psychedelic. I think that's what we liked about. Well, that one immediately is like a mocking psychedelic band name, like the Chocolate Watch Band. Exactly. Yeah. When the embarrassment name was kind of suggested then that also i thought and i think i defended this or i i made this argument i pitched it to the rest of the guys because i immediately i got the levels of meaning for it and i thought you know it, it has the sound of a very authoritative uh it's got weight to it sounds like you're you know you're proudly you're like the association or the you know, something with that kind of group weight to it. I thought the embarrassment, it sounded heavy enough, but then at the same time, it's completely ridiculous because you're trashing yourself, you know, immediately. So I, I liked the confusion of it. You'd like, what, what, wait a minute, what are you saying? So not everybody immediately agreed with me, but eventually, yeah, that was the winning, the winning name. Oh, ho. Well, I feel like a band like The Replacements may have taken note there. Oh. So you came up in the uh, late 70s Kansas punk scene, which seems like an unlikely locale, but I guess that's, you know, underground music, the true definition of it. What was it like in those days in places like Wichita and Lawrence that you were playing? Frankly, you know, it, it took several years, but um, three out of the four of us had grown up together, had met as kids, and we gathered a lot of the times around music and around um experiencing new music of of all kinds i mean we went through like prog rock periods and and all kinds of different records that one of us would buy and then share with each other and we you know we'd talk about it and why we liked it and and we uh weren't that musical individually ourselves i was struggling to learn guitar i was i wanted to to be a guitarist and john actually was a trumpet player in school and um and woody brent was learning drums because of his older brother he had kind of uh, inherited a drum kit but he was also trained on piano he had he had a much fuller musical background he came from a musical family his mother and everything so he was way ahead of us musically so it's not fair to ever think of him as like just the drummer or something he he had a 
great musical education. And by the time the punk music, I mean, we had access to it. Uh, we were used to seeking out the latest music. The trouble that you had to go to was to oftentimes drive up four hours to Kansas City or at least to Lawrence, which was a little shorter distance away from Wichita, and go to a, a store that had import records if we couldn't find them in town, or we'd order stuff and have it mailed to us, and we were able to find British music publications even on the newsstand, uh, oddly enough. I don't know who else was buying them, because we didn't know anybody that was into this kind of music except our immediate little group. So. Uh, when we finally put our first band together, a year, couple years before the embarrassment, we went through these prototype bands and we put together our first punk band. We didn't know who we could even get to want to come and hear us. We had to put up notices, flyers around town. Of course, there's obviously no social media. This is like 78 or something. Or, and we had to just get the word out around town and see if we could um, gather up other misfits find you know like-minded people and sure enough we did that actually worked and that became the nucleus of the scene the scene grew out of this first group of people that came together in wichita because it was like they were curious to know who else was into this weird stuff and we played you know really horribly written original songs but mostly did covers of of uh velvet underground and sex pistols and Iggy and the Stooges, whatever was simple enough, because I, I barely knew anything on guitar, but luckily Brent Woody Geisman, you know, was a good enough drummer that he could keep things moving just on the drums alone. So that allowed me to fill in this dense sort of sound and, and, and John picked up the bass. He wasn't planning on he wasn't a front man, that was he was years away from being a front man, but he was fumbling around on bass and we would just start making noise and and people at least understood, okay, we're in the right place with the right people, and it just grew from there. You know, it got to the point where uh, there became a handful of bands, you know, an all-girl band, punk band of, you know, non-musicians. So it was like our local version of The Slits or something like that, and, um, and, and a few other guy bands, you know, spun off people that we... So for a short time had in our band lineup way still way before the embarrassment you know we would recruit some people and then that the chemistry wasn't right and they'd go off and form their own different band and then we'd get gigs together where you know two or three of these bands would play and it still wasn't the embarrassment at that point but that was how it grew very organically you know we just had to find the people and we had to create places to play because all of the established venues were southern rock and metal whatever metal was in the late 70s whatever it was called then yeah. hard rock cover glam rock. yeah well no glam rock was not accepted this was this was a redneck environment yeah, yeah you had long hair but you had it as a mullet you know and you were tough you were a redneck and tough and and if you saw these like spiky headed kids come into the bars, like what the hell are you doing here? What you know, you fag? You know, what are you? What are you <laughs> wearing torn up shirt? You know, we adopted some of the punk stylings to a certain point, but uh, that didn't last long. I mean, you can tell by the look of any pictures of the embarrassment. You know, by the time we were comfortable doing our music, we had no. No interest, no pretense of adopting any of the fashion. 
we were kind of anti-fashion, I guess. Take us through the hours. So, yeah. Well, Bill, what what is some of like your most vivid memories? You're saying when you first started kicking off that scene, you were putting playbills on what you know, building walls, putting out wherever you could. What's the most vivid memory of that time that you have? Being a visual person, yeah, you know, I I don't because um, so little of that was documented. I mean, I I seriously have, in all medical seriousness, I've got memory issues beyond my my advanced age and I, I do fine with most stuff so I rely on you know when I look back it's like I, I've got to dig up photos and I have a lot of them I've, I've been digging them up for the sake of the the embarrassment movie project so I, I've dug through all of these archives and files and I've recovered video uh, well actually uh, eight millimeter films uh, in fact probably the best memory I have is because I had a Super 8 movie camera. I was a, a, a wannabe filmmaker in the, in the 70s as well and um, made all these little films. And some of the films then captured these early days with the music. Uh, so there was a music party down in the basement of, of Woody's mother house that was out in the suburbs from Wichita or out in the country, you could say. And and we gathered there, and, and, and he was able to have his drum kit, and we brought in all the amps. And so we invited this group of people, most of them uh, hand-picked, you know, came over and made a party out of it. So it was like a home con a home concert, is that what they call them now, when people are yeah, doing these cool. tours? Yeah. And we got a lot of it on um, Super 8, unfortunately, silent film. You know, we didn't have sound film. No. So eventually, the uh, thanks to... Our, our web master for the band, uh, he ended up digitizing that film footage with some audio boombox recordings from the same night. Nothing is synchronized exactly, but it gives you, gives you a feel for what that was like with just the noisy songs going on and us, everybody being silly and I'm trying to do some lead vocals and sound aggressive and punky and hard, you know, kind of hardcore. But uh, for me, that was sort of not very natural. I, I, I guess I was into it, but as we could tell later, you know, that wasn't to be my place in the band. That wasn't the right role for me to play at, uh, at the time as frontman. But it was it's fun to look back on. Yeah, it seems like your shows were just big parties and everyone was invited. Oh, yeah. And people truly from all walks of life, um, you know, uniformed uh, postal delivery guys and, and um, people from the university. Wichita State University is a big campus that we, uh, that's where we met Ron Klaus as, and recruited him for bass. You know, we were all in, in the art department there together at that, at that time, too. So... Uh, and then we'd get people from out in the sticks and, and uh, lots of people who felt like they didn't have anywhere else to belong. They could fit in there and we welcomed ev everyone. And, you know, we had, there were, it was mixed race. We had, you know, it wasn't all a white crowd either and uh we had high school 
kids wanting to come. Like, it, I wish I'd have been that cool in high school because now we were at college age. But there were, you know, some of these <laughs> kids that we could relate to that were still in high school and they had caught on. You know, they were wanting to experience this, uh, the punk music or if they were cool, they weren't calling it new wave. You know, if they were cool enough, they were more into punk. I think punk was cooler than new wave. Don't you? Wouldn't you agree? Would agree, but we love it all here. <laughs> Speaking of house parties and speaking of Ron Klaus, years later, of course, Big Dipper would record a song called Ron Klaus Wrecked His House. And, you know, I, I've read the some of the backstory on it. Can you give us just the uh, the short version of it? Well, yeah, I, I uh, refreshed my memory thanks to this uh, brand new as of this week. You know, the uh, Big Dipper's Facebook page has a nice lengthy post. I think it's the more detailed version than ever. So I even learned how I had created a false memory about this, uh, the beginning of the song. Because the, the party happened in 79, barely, you know, this would have only been a few months or, or a matter of weeks after we'd actually come up with the name, The Embarrassment, and we'd played this radio show. Uh, we had been rehearsing in Ron Klaus's dining room. Uh, I have some photos from that time, again, so I have that visual reference and uh we were able to make a lot of noise and then his landlord up and said you know right you know you're gonna have to move out i'm not kicking you out for any reason other than the house is going to be demolished you know we're just we're tearing it down so after we got over the disappointment like oh we got to find a new place to play ron has to find a place to live but hey let you know let's make something positive out of this we'll throw a party and we could just let everyone start destroying the house because you know pre-demolition just like, hey, do whatever you want. The place is being torn down. That was the thought. It was all well intended. And um, I could already feel where this is going. <laughs> now, there was a little bit of artistic license by the time uh, Gary and I and Big Dipper, we wrote the verses. But um, it was just kind of romanticizing what really happened. But yeah, we had all of our friends over just like another local concert because we were used to doing gigs in alternative spaces. Though so we brought the PA in and we were already set up we let some of our friends bands uh, borrow equipment and, and they played we all played a set while everybody was just taking sledgehammers and bashing you know going around and destroying whatever they wanted There's an audio tape of the whole thing, so you can hear not only the bands playing, but you can hear all the destruction. And somebody tried to light the house on fire, be it starting in the basement. That so that was about wow. to kind of get a little out of hand. But um, we put it out ourselves. There was no need for the fire department. The police came by. I think you know the neighbors thought it was a little bit unusual the level of the partying that was going on. But once the police came by, you know, they were even fine when they heard the story that, that Ron told them. It's like, hey, yeah, I live here. I'm a tenant. Yeah. The, no, this is cool. The landlord's demolishing the house. So 
just all fine. And they, just they was like, oh, okay, great. Have fun. You know? <laughs> so, that, that that was police back in 1979. Yeah. Now you would all be on the oh. ground with the knee into the back of your neck. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and then some, there are gaps in the story even now. We weren't able to answer the question, well, what happened between then and, and then the next day when it was front page news in the in the daily newspaper that this house wrecking party had occurred and and that the tenant was in hiding and the landlord was furious like what have you done to my house claiming that well he he didn't know what was being said about the house being uh demolished he said I, no i never yeah. said that so i knew that was coming <laughs> so we think that you know he we blamed him a lot for like he backed out who he changed his story trying to target ron you know maybe he was looking for a nice settlement and ron so was you know potentially going to be charged with some criminal behavior but after a few days he was able to reappear and come back to rehearsal and we had moved our headquarters of operation embarrassment headquarters moved to an actual garage so we could legitimately be a garage band over at where brent was living and um Things got, you know, pretty quiet after that and nothing more came of it. But we, now Brent reminded me, this is where I had a completely false memory. I thought it wasn't until four years later that we were sitting around and had the idea for the song just as a chorus. And and I knew, I remembered that we were parodying Neil Young for some reason. We were like semi kind of on and off Neil Young fans of what he was doing at the time, you know, with Crazy Horse kind of pre-grunge yeah. rock and that was cool thought well let's just write it you know here's this catchy chorus ron klaus wrecked his hat and sound nasally like neil young and it was catchy and we we recorded it on a little cassette recorder as we did for saving song ideas but we couldn't come up with any we couldn't flesh it out and it seems so much of a joke anyway it just got set aside i thought that happened later Brent convinced me that, no, we did that immediately. In fact, while we were wondering where Ron was for two days and what was going to happen to him, was he going to go to prison, we sat around with nothing better to do, and, and we made use of the time by coming up with that song chorus. Wow. And then when we got back into our routine, of course, we, we probably didn't even want to keep reminding his he probably wanted to put that behind him I'm, i know he did because yeah. <laughs> in in recent times you know ron has explained to me how he really had mixed feelings about that song even being done by big dipper because it reminded him and it's not a pleasant memory for him he he doesn't oh. he doesn't like going back to that place and i for the first time then i actually felt really bad and and have had a lot of guilt about wow you know i never expected that because it took, you know, me bringing that little chorus idea to Gary Wallach when we were starting to collaborate for Big Dipper. And I said, well, here's something that, you know, we could make something out of. It's, it's, there's potential here. And Gary immediately said, oh, yeah, this is a great chorus. And we were in this fun, loving period where, you know, we, we didn't take it too seriously either. But we just bounced ideas off each other. And we wrote out these verses I told him the story and he accepted it, but we were free to, well, let's embellish it and let's kind of make it more universal and see where that goes. And, you know, pretty quickly came up with enough words that we thought, yeah, we can structure this now and, and we'll make it sound more anthemic 
and the rest of the band loved it and you know we just went with it it wasn't anything particularly different than any big dipper song process other than it had this earlier origin with the embarrassment so i gave brent when it came time to release it on uh, our craps album uh made sure that i gave brent due writing credit because it never would have you know happened initially if it hadn't been for he and i bouncing that off each other i knew that that had happened and we both remembered it that way it was the two of us sitting around just trying to make something positive out of our worried uh, worried days well it is a great song so big dipper formed in 1985 correct in boston so what took you out to boston uh well art you see uh the band in 83 at the time when i thought brent and i were coming up with that idea i was remembering us sitting around in an, an apartment we shared that was way too small and you know we were literally you know starving musicians at that point because we'd been on the road so much we hadn't been able to keep our jobs anymore you know uh the road had become everything and yet we couldn't live off it so we were on our last legs as a band and uh even though we were just putting out our last record at the time. And we packed it in, and I, I had already, I guess I'd been even expecting this to happen, and I had been applying to grad schools based on where we had gigged as the embarrassment, because we mostly traveled east from from center of the, of the U.S. We usually went north and east and south, never west. And I love Boston and a few other places, but I, I had narrowed it down to three and then boston was the the favorite so i made it officials like the band is not this isn't going to work anymore and in 83 we just stopped and i accepted the grad school offer and i was able to move pack up my car and go out there in 83 well, well woody was brent was going to go west to uh, arizona because he had a girlfriend that had moved out but he ended up actually then following me out to boston very soon after i went uh, which is how he ended up in the Del Fuegos, just because he, he had nothing better to do at the time, and uh, we weren't planning on doing music together. And, you know, I don't know what his thoughts were about music for himself. Obviously, that was a good option for him, but I was packing it in musically, and it's like, I'm back to my art, and I'm just going to get my master's degree in uh, painting. Couldn't stay away, could you? I no, well, <laughs> because that was a two-year program, and when it ended in '85, I had been introduced to Gary by uh, a mutual friend. An another artist had been working with Gary part time while she was in grad school, and so the, when she learned about my band, and then she learned about his band, he was in Volcano Sons. And she put two and two together, and she, and then she comes to me and says, "You know, my friend Gary that I work with." He's actually a fan of your band, The Embarrassment. It's like, whoa, what a small world. So, yeah, I went and saw the, the Volcano Suns at some clubs. And, and, and that was actually a chore for me because I was so sworn off of music and a music career band. I didn't listen 
to current bands, you know, you'd be shocked by what I was usually listening to while I was painting, you know, what the music I would put on. But um, I met Gary. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. That that would have been a shock. Yoko Ono. Hey. Yeah. Closer hey to now. Kenny G than Yoko. Closer to Kenny G. Easy listening. Yeah. Okay. Easy listening and and Sinatra, swing swing music and stuff like that. Not rock at all, and, unless it was like 50s, you know, early rock and roll. And that wasn't new for me, but that was like I, I was so burned out on current music. And I, and, it, and I think I was also hurting, actually. I probably didn't admit it at the time, but I think I was so disappointed and hurting from the failure of the embarrassment. I mean, we, we had hit some high points and thought we, we had a future, and when it fell apart, uh, it was painful for me to listen to other current music. You know, I would hear R.E.M. on the radio, and I was thinking, God, it was just a few years ago we were playing the same circuit as them. Mm-hmm. And I, now I'm hearing them, you know, on Boston, uh, you know, mainstream rock radio. I'm thinking, wow, that could have that could have been us, but uh, you know, it wasn't meant to be. What we didn't, we obviously didn't follow the right series of steps. We stayed in Wichita. We didn't move to New York. We didn't want to move to, you know, another city where we could make it. We were very proud of our roots and thought there was nothing wrong with being from Wichita or being from the Midwest. But we didn't count on what a detriment, what a hardship that was for us uh, to overcome uh, until it was too late. And we realized, wow, we, it just dries up all the, uh, the opportunities that could have come uh, to us if we'd have been somewhere else. So, so I wanted to stay away from that and just focus on the positive of my art. But I met Gary through that friend, and, and we... He was actually of the same mind. Volcano Sons had not been a fun experience for him, for whatever reason. And some of that, some of it's you know his temperament. I mean, he lo- He's a creative genius. I think he loves composing and creating, and he's such a, a great guitarist. But it's just that creative process. He's got really no use for touring or getting on stage and even trying to please an audience. He's just in it for the music, and and we had that in common. And we thought, well, we can probably just make a, not a career, but let's make a hobby out of just getting together and um, writing songs. And, uh, you know, Gary had recording equipment already at the time. So we thought, wow, we'll just, this will be fun. We can just collaborate on songwriting. That's what we really like to do. So you had three very good, critically lauded, if not, you know, commercially successful albums for Homestead. So then interesting that, you know, you said more or less that it was not really, you know, intended to to go places, I guess, with Big Dipper. So for your fourth album, Slam, in 1990, <laughs> you signed with the major label CBS. And, and I have to say, I've read some reviews of this album where, you know, they've said that basically it polished away a lot of the band's grit. You know, major label didn't suit you well. That's actually one of my favorite albums. I mean, I think some of your greatest songs are on there. Love Barge, Another Life, Bony Knees of Nothing, Impossible Things, Father's Day. I mean, just so many great songs. Left to hold on to is myself. 
So I love that record, but 32 years later, what are your feelings on that album and your time at Epic? Oh boy, what a learning experience. Well, you see, there's a lot of ways to go with that, and I'm sure you don't want to make it too lengthy, but um, the songwriter aspect of us would see nothing wrong with taking that situation and trying to make the most of it. The fact that we had this big budget and all this more time and you know somebody who we were supposed to view as an actual experienced producer for the first time okay whatever whatever that was going to bring to the situation you know we we were um optimistic open-minded uh, yeah and we were very accommodating guys just naturally you know there was nobody in the band that was this hard-ass you know, driven person that was going to take control and say, we're going to do things this way for this reason, because this is the goal. We were so much just about enjoying the process of making music that we adapted to that. And, and we were also so naive about the business. The biggest mistake and where things, you know, went horribly wrong and we were taken advantage of, being that naive, we really thought that a, a major label would have our best interests <laughs> at heart what a foolish thing you know if if i can save any up-and-coming musicians or bands the trouble don't ever believe that somebody outside of your inner circle has your best interest at heart they have their own and they're and they're looking to use you to their game so we just became part of you know a group of newly signed acts that money was given to because hey not my you know not my money well here's some of the budget they don't care yeah. where that and if they lose that money they don't care because it's going to be made somewhere else one one of those albums is going to become a hit and make the money that it needs to make and all the ones that don't they're all just thrown to the side those people don't matter a bit as people as like songwriters who have, have put their whole you know life into this form of expression and they have this everything is writing on this they don't care about that it's like uh now sorry you're dropped or you know or worse yet yeah you you signed a multi record deal uh, we're not going to put out any more of your music but here's the bill you're stuck with this yeah so things actually could have been even worse for us but um as usual we made the music that we wanted to make and we thought oh this is fantastic we can actually expand like we'd always had these ideas of wanting to take the songs to a further level well now we actually had a chance to do that so another thing we overlooked i think is that a lot of our fans and not that we had a lot of fans but the people who might have been the most passionate about the band or the most vocal about it you know they might have perceived us as having a certain attitude and a certain sound but that was just the natural chemistry and combination and where we were at at the time, you know, with, with all the various factors. We had no reason to stick to that sound. When we had a chance to spread out and build on it and expand it, it's like, well, that's what we're supposed to do. What, what else would you do with all this extra money and time in the studio and a, and a, a more experienced, you know, producer engineer on hand? You want to do stuff that you never did before. So we took full advantage of that. Whereas if we'd have said, hey, no thanks, major label. We, uh, we had op you know options of staying on an indie label with a smaller budget. And we could have made our own 
sound again. And based on the demos that we did make for Slam, you know, when you look back on that, like that sounded like Big Dipper, a lot of the same songs, more energized, maybe, you know, more um, aggressive. It wouldn't have turned off some of those original fans, you know, and, and we could have done that cheaply, another just basic indie rock record, and we might have been a lot better off. We we might have had a longer career based on that, but we didn't think that that was uh, the right thing to do. We did, we had no vision of, you know, how, how things would play out. We just thought we can make a much better record if we have more time and, you know, we can do, do more of the things we want to do. Yeah. We thought it was all going to be positive. We we were in for quite a shock. Well, rock and roll history repeats itself. Yes, <laughs> of course. But we can laugh about it now. You know, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't ruin any of us. Uh, you know, none, luckily none of us were were in that bad of shape emotionally or personally. We we took it in stride. I mean, you have had a long career in in various forms of art. What is uh, Bill Goffrey up to now? Uh, well, I'm a full time practicing painter uh, uh i do oil paintings of my city wichita that i came back to in 2013 from my 30-year adventure in in boston and massachusetts uh -huh. which you know, took me from boston down to the south shore which is many many towns all crammed together and uh, um i got married in early 2013 i'd been previously married and had a son who was uh getting pr pretty far along in school but i was divorced and and uh, got remarried in 2013 and to a a local south shore gal and um but we ended up coming back to wichita for family reasons and part of that experience ended up reconnecting me with painting the city as a subject so uh in a miraculous series of events that i won't try to explain here for for the sake of time it led to from a part-time hobby for my own personal creative therapy you know just to, to to keep my sanity i have to be painting and it has grown to where it's a full-time family business i just paint wichita and um, i make print reproductions of of a lot of the subjects because people know the subjects it's a whole tour of of the city in a way yeah highlights of the city not in too commercial a way i don't mean it to sound like it's a very commercially planned thing i i just started doing it as a a labor of love from from the heart and getting back to my roots as a painter well bill i've i've been looking at your paintings and they're incredible this authenticity authenticity i don't even know how you say it i pronounce it authenticity authenticity in when in songwriting sometimes we apply practices of of what visual artists do we apply that to the to the songwriting process i've also done the opposite and applied things from my music career like the indie touring and doing everything yourself diy kind of ethic well i and some sense of marketing without ever being really uh business-minded but i i thought you know what i'm going to come up with like a catchy name for this series of paintings so i took the word uh, authenticity and just put a little hyphen in there so that it could be authentic city because it's all about the city and well, you know nice. it might seem hokey and if i had a if i had a gallery and a dealer they probably at the very outset they would have said no you don't want to do that yeah. that's not that's not what artists do and then i think back to my time you know with a major label and i think 
I need a gallery and an art dealer in the same way that Big Dipper needed a major label. Yeah. yeah. And now that keeps me doing things. I just trust my gut. I'm the artist here, buddy. Yeah, like we always should have done. It's like, trust your instincts. You know what's best for your art or your music. You know, you're the only one that knows knows it to that level, so you got to trust yourself. Well, for me, just looking at it, it's like the attention to detail and then the shadowing. It's just, it's almost like you took a picture, but it's a painting. It's it's just, it blows me away. Oh, thank you. I, I, I have gotten into a lot of detail, so... I go into this zone, I put on music usually, and again, you'd probably be shocked by what music it would be. Bobby and, V. Uh, no. No. I you might be close. Bobby v. Uh, I listen to a lot of Bobby V. I discovered a few years ago this weird phenomenon. If, if I'm painting and I'm in the zone and I have the right music on in the background, I start inventing vocal harmonies because I, if I know the song well enough, I start singing along with the lead vocal but i do it in a new harmony that's not yeah. part of the arrangement mm -hmm. and that keeps me somehow just focused enough on the painting to kind of let that flow and i think oh i guess that proves to me that i have sort of a a natural tendency toward creating harmonies because i you know that's been something i've liked to contribute to all of my band work and and the, the current collaboration that i've been doing uh, the past few years, so I, I like my role as a as an arranger collaborator too. And that I'm finding evidence that that's a very natural thing just like my painting is now a natural process i i can identify what parts of my music making are natural versus what parts are completely forced and well whatever you're doing it's working very very well because <laughs> i now want to go to wichita <laughs> which you. is something i never wanted to do me too i've never been oh yeah yeah hey yeah. look me up oh well, i had a great time i appreciate you uh having me and it's you know it's a highlight of of my weekend and uh, and I'll be a regular uh, follower and, and listener, you know, because I just kind of we just kind of like crossed paths. Yes. Fortunately, recently. And, and so we I like I like the way that kind of thing works. Must have happened for a reason, because I think everything serendipity. Does. Yeah. So we'll see. You know, maybe something else will come of it. Anytime you feel like hanging out with us again, let us know. We would love that. We are fans. Thank you for all the great music. We appreciate you being on the show. Thank you once again to our special lad, Bill Goffrier. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you all out there for listening. And we will wave hello and say goodbye. Peace. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com slash only3lads. 
We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.